I'm always looking for that holy space to open up and worship for me, and that was it. So thank you. As I read our scripture for this morning early last week, my mind went to a film that I first saw more than 30 years ago, a film titled Babette's Feast, based on a 1958 story by Isak Dinesen. This Danish film was released in 1987 and won an Oscar for Best Foreign Film that year. As the film had come to mind, I was then trying to figure out where I first saw it, or even why I watched it, and I suspect, after talking it over with Pastor Amy, who was in seminary with me, that perhaps we saw it in a seminary class, although I can't say which one. In any case, let me give you a synopsis of the story, and then I want to show just a short film clip, a little less than four minutes, unpack that for a moment, and then circle back around to why it made me think of the Scripture and what the Scripture might offer for us here and now. So that's the plan. So the movie is about two elderly sisters who live in a small village on the remote western coast of Denmark in the 19th century. Their names are Martina and Philippa. They belong to a pietistic Protestant sect. It's a very strict and somber Christian group founded by their late father, and the congregation has slowly dwindled to a small but faithful group. The backstory of the two sisters is that both of them had romantic suitors in their youth and opportunities to go out into the world, but their father rejected those possibilities, wanting to keep his two daughters close to assist him in his religious mission. In the clip I'm going to show, there's a group of 12 seated at a banquet table, and the sisters are the ones sitting at either end of the table, so you will recognize who they are. Fourteen years before the present day in the story, a refugee from a counter-revolutionary uprising in Paris shows up at their door in Denmark with a letter from one of the sisters' former suitors, asking the two sisters to take in the young woman as a housekeeper. Her name is Babette, and while the sisters have no money to pay her, she begs them to take her in, and she works as their cook for the next 14 years. Babette cooks for them, for the sisters, that is, but also for the congregation, slowly, secretly improving on their bland style of food. And over time, she not only gains their trust, but their appreciation and their affection. Meanwhile, the congregation, as its members age and those members become more committed to their familiar ways, descends into a pattern of petty conflict. Petty as we would look at it, but to them, from inside their disagreements, they act as though the conflicts are about critical matters and even unforgivable hurts. One day, word comes that Babette has won a considerable sum of money in the lottery in Paris. Apparently, a friend has been renewing Babette's lottery ticket, playing her numbers for her, so to speak, all these years, and finally she has won the sum of 10,000 francs. 
With her winnings, Babette decides she will prepare a delicious dinner for the sisters and the small congregation, a real French dinner. She makes this offer to the sisters, and with some reluctance, because of how foreign and unfamiliar it sounds to them, they finally accept. How can they refuse Babette, who has been such a loyal and faithful household worker? Babette arranges for a young man to go to Paris and gather all the food that she will need to make the dinner. The supplies include all manner of extravagant and unusual items. In the movie, you see them brought in on wagons and in baskets, live turtles, quail, champagne, sherry, truffles, caviar, ingredients for the lightest of pastries, and so on. When the members of the congregation see how exotic the ingredients are as they arrive, there's a fuss in the village. They hold an emergency meeting, and they come to a decision. They will accept Babette's gift and eat the meal that she prepares for them because to not eat it would be ungracious. But in order to avoid the sin of sensual luxury that this food promises, they will not speak of the meal before, during, or after. They won't speak of it as they eat it, and they certainly will not allow themselves to enjoy it. That's where the clip I want to show you in a moment picks up. As they sit down to the meal, they are intending not to enjoy. I should mention that seated with them at the meal is a military general who has come to visit the community. He is the nephew of a member of the congregation, but more important, he is a man of the world, experienced in food and drink. And as he begins to eat the meal, you will see that he is astonished at how delicious it is because he is not part of the congregation. He begins to comment on the quality the amazing tastes. He is both astonished at how wonderful everything tastes, and he is astonished that no one else seems to notice. Okay, we're going to show the clip now in a, mo- in a moment, as soon as they have it queued up, and then I'll briefly tell the rest of the story. Now, the movie is in Danish, so there's subtitles, and it may be difficult for you to catch all of them, but don't worry about that. Catch them if you can, and then when the clip's over, I'm just going to run through real quickly what was said in the dialogue in case you missed any of it, and then we'll go on. Okay? Babette siger, vi er klar. Jamen så, lad os da gå til bords.
husk, vi kan enten smage. Lad os bede med præstens egne ord. Mor, min brød i dag, min læben Mor, min læben sjælens tjener mere. Mor, min sjæl på fremad, Gud til ære. Amen. Du siger ikke noget om maden. Ikke et ord. Ligesom med brylluppet i kana, maden har ingen betydning. Vi vil ikke skænke den tanke. Det må være en slags limonade. So at the very beginning, the serving boy uh, says, Babette says dinner is served, and the sisters say, let us take our place at the table. And then you saw the congregation members say, remember, we have lost our sense of taste. Let us pray using our own ministers, our minister's own words. May the bread nourish my body. May my body do my soul's bidding. May my soul rise up to serve God eternally. Amen. And then... There's a little bit of back and forth. The congregation members say, not a word about the food, not a word. Like the wedding at Cana, the, wor- the food is of no importance. We won't even think about it. And then there's the general tasting, first the sherry. He says, amazing, an amontillado, the finest amontillado I've ever tasted. And then he tastes the turtle soup. This is quite definitely a real turtle soup. And what a turtle soup. And then Babette says, the says to the boy in the kitchen to serve the champagne one glass per person and fill the general's glass whenever it is empty. And then one of the congregation members takes a drink of champagne and says, it must be some kind of lemonade. <laughs> and then the kitchen helper, 
one of the servants who's sitting in the kitchen at the very end, who's just finished his glass of sherry, says, this is good. He's not part of the community, right? Not part of the congregation. I wanted you to see that particular clip because you get to see how blindly resistant the members of the congregation are to what is happening to them and for them. They talk, but they can't. They won't talk about what is right in front of them. The general, who is the outsider, sees everything. He tastes the wonder set before him. It's like he's living in an alternate reality. And maybe in a sense he is because he seems to know at some deep sensory level, from some level of remembering and recognizing, that in fact this cuisine, this meal that Babette has prepared for them, her work, her gift, is not a meal prepared by a humble cook, but by one of the greatest chefs of Paris. That meal, as it turns out, costs 10,000 francs. Every penny of her windfall. When it's over, the two elderly sisters imagine that Babette will return to Paris. They know she won the lottery, so surely she won't stay with their humble remote community, but Babette explains to them that the money is all gone all spent on the feast. The sisters are grateful, truly grateful, but also regretful. And in the last scene of the movie, Martine says, now you'll be poor for the rest of your life. Babette replies, an artist is never poor. And then Philippa, the other sister, says, this is not the end, Babette. In paradise, you will be the great artist God meant you to be. Oh, how you will enchant the angels. And the story, the movie, ends there. But here's the thing, before that last conversation, before the sisters learn that Babette has spent everything on the meal, before they make their declarations of poverty and then paradise, something else has happened. And it is this, the members of the congregation, the ones with the petty quarrels that they had elevated into unforgivable sins, begin around the table as they are overcome by the food, to overcome their conflicts, they begin to reconcile, moved by the splendid, delicious, extravagant meal. One man, critical of his congregational brother for years and years, compliments the other man. Oh, the look of surprise. An austere-looking woman kisses her austere-looking husband. He's startled and then kisses her back. One person looks with kindness at another. The sisters exchange looks of surprise and relief at what is happening around the table, even if they can't quite comprehend it. It's all very subtle and maybe seems insignificant, but it's not insignificant. The meal transforms those who partake of it. It is so delicious that it elevates them from their normal patterns. It lifts them from the ruts of their lives. It is as if in the breaking of the bread, they somehow have scales dropped from their eyes. The hardness of heart is softened, and they see each other for the first time in decades and decades as true sisters and brothers to each other. I would even say that around that table, they see Christ in each other. 
One commentator puts it this way, although the other celebrants refuse at first to comment on the earthly pleasures of their meal, Babette's gifts break down their distrust and superstitions, elevating them physically, physically and spiritually. Old wrongs are forgiven, ancient loves are rekindled, rekindled, and a mystical redemption of the human spirit settles over the table. Sometimes we our eyes closed people. Not just out of stubbornness, but perhaps out of habit, or because we have become emotionally closed off, or because we've taken rules and wrapped our lives around them instead of rooting ourselves in relationship. The disciples on the road to Emmaus couldn't see Jesus right in front of them. They couldn't recognize him because their eyes had been closed by fear and confusion. The events of Jesus' death must have been like a veil of darkness being lowered over them. They couldn't see. I wonder whether they were like the members of the congregation in the story I just told you, and that as eyes closed persons, they may have been already on their way to becoming blind to not only Christ in their memory, but to Christ in each other. It's interesting, isn't, that, isn't it, that as they walk along together, the risen Jesus retells the whole story of what has happened, and they still don't recognize him. It's only when they sit down to eat that finally they see him, know him. As they came near the village where they, to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us because it's almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. During the darkest days of COVID, when we couldn't be together in person, I wondered And I actually worried about what the separation would do to us. When we could finally be back together face to face, would we remember how to be back together face to face? That might sound to you like I'm exaggerating. Remember how to be back together? What are you talking about? Of course we would remember, recognize. We would recognize each other. We would know each other. So we just pick up where we left off. But the truth is, being apart so long was traumatizing in a way. People we loved declined and some died. We missed milestones in each other's lives. We got out of practice at reading each other's faces. Back together, would we know each other? Would we recognize each other? Would we see Christ in each other? Before COVID, we sometimes teased about how many events in the life of the church were built around food, joking that 
with the brethren, getting together was actually just an excuse to eat. I don't think we need to apologize or duck our heads about that anymore. I think that every time we get together is a fine time to eat. Why? Because we've learned not to take it for granted anymore. And because sitting at a table, engaging the senses of not only hearing and seeing, but tasting and smelling and touching, sharing something nourishing, meeting a hunger that is spiritual and physical, all these things open our eyes and our hearts to see Christ. A part of living in the new reality of resurrected life is being able to sense all of life. And sensing all of life in its grace and beauty and wonder can then move us forward in hope and gratitude. But mind you, it is not just that sensory awareness that moves us forward. It is also the ability to see God in the midst of this new life, at the center of it. At first, the disciples didn't recognize Jesus, didn't see him when he spoke with them. They only recognized him, only saw him when he communed with them. They sat together, they ate together, they sensed together, and then they knew him. Babette may not have intended that her meal would open the eyes of the members of that pietistic Christian sect there on the windswept coast of Denmark. She may have only wanted to do what she did best, gourmet cooking, offering a true delight for the senses. And so she did that. But what she also did was open the eyes of every person who was willfully wearing blinders. She opened their eyes to heavenly tastes, yes. But more than that, she opened their eyes to their earthly kin. Christ was made known to them in the breaking of the bread, Christ before them, Christ between them, Christ within them. In a little while, in an hour or more, you will go home or you will go out and you will eat your Sunday lunch. Some of you call it Sunday dinner. It likely won't be a gourmet French meal, I don't think, unless there's something going on in this community that I don't know about. But I hope you have a friend or a companion or a table mate or a family member to eat with, to break bread with, Maybe if you don't, you need to find one, at least for today. And I hope that you eat with your eyes open, your mind open, your heart open, and I hope that because of that, you, in some way or other, encounter and recognize the risen Christ this day. Christ before you, Christ between you, Christ within you. And finally this, in food and fellowship, I hope you recognize the gifts of nourishment and encouragement and kinship as evidence of new life in Christ. May he be made known in the breaking of your bread. Amen.